Wonderful to be at another BBF conference, isn't it? And uh, we're happy to meet a number of new people that uh, I hadn't met before. And uh, it's a real joy to have you all here for this week. I hope all of you can stay right through Thursday evening. Uh, one of the problems that I always felt we had in these conferences was that some folks uh, take off Thursday morning or perhaps even uh, Wednesday morning and they miss out on some of the best messages of the week. I hope that you can stay with us for the rest of the week. As the banner behind me announces, the theme for this week is, of course, the Ministry of Reconciliation. We refer to the message that we stand for and believe as the grace message. That may sound a little sectarian to some people, and uh, sometimes uh, folks accuse us of being uh, bigoted and proud uh, about what we think we know, they say. But uh, wonderful to have new joy and new assurance and new confidence in the ministry. And coming to see the gospel of grace and the word rightly divided has changed a lot of our lives, hasn't it? And uh, the reason we're here tonight is not because uh, of the climate at Cedar Lake or the, uh, the uh, surroundings here necessarily, as nice as they are, but we're here to come to know the Lord better and come to know his word better. And I trust that that'll be the real result of this week. We call ourselves grace believers, and of course the term comes from Acts 20, 24. Very familiar to most of you, but for those who may not be familiar, turn there with me, please. Acts twenty twenty four. the Apostle Paul describes what I believe is the overall term for the message that he preached and which we believe is God's message for today. Acts twenty twenty four says... But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear or precious, one translation has it, unto myself, so that I might finish the course, definite article, with joy, and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of or about the grace of God. This distinctive message called the gospel of the grace of God has a twofold application as set forth in the Pauline epistles and as stated in our doctrinal statement. 
The ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, which we'll turn to shortly, and the dispensing or the dispensation of the mystery, Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 9. And I just want to read that ninth verse, especially for those who may not be familiar. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world or the ages hath been hid in God who created all things by or through Jesus Christ. The ministry of reconciliation and the dispensing of the mystery. These two aspects describe the gospel of the grace of God. In our conference theme, we're going to deal with the first part of this great message, the message of reconciliation. And it's my privilege, uh, according to the program committee, to look at verses 14 to 16 in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been there in every session since uh, we started last evening, and we'll go there again tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14, 15, and 16. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if or since, there's no uncertainty here, since one died for all, then all died. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. After the flesh, that is. Here we have, in these three verses, an impelling motive an unlimited provision and a changed relationship. And those are the three points of my message. And when I get to the last one, you'll know I'm through. I'll try to finish when I'm through also. Verse 14, an impelling motive. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that since one died for all, then all died. Actually, the word constraineth here is a word which means to confine or to secure or to hold fast or to control. Several words could be used as synonyms for the word constrain here. And he says the love of Christ 
constraineth us. Actually, there are three constraining forces here in the context. Verse 10, the judgment seat of Christ, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in or through his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or evil. The second constraining force is the fear of the Lord in verse 11. Our brother Beckemeyer spoke about it in the Bible school hour this morning. The fear of the Lord. Fear that I should hurt the Lord by my actions as a believer and as a member of the body. Do we think about that? Are we fearful of hurting the Lord by the way we act and by the way we behave? Paul says it is in verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust or hope also are made manifest in your consciences. But the highest force which is constraining the apostle is the love of Christ. Not our love for him, but his love for us. Most of us know that in 1 John 4.10 we read herein is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Two words for love in Scripture, as most of us know. One meaning simply affection. The other, a sacrificial, divine love. And I really don't believe that an unsaved person can have that divine love. There's a lot of loose talk about love today, and most of it is what we know as eros love. The word from which we get the word erotic. That's not really love at all, is it? The love which the apostle uses here is, of course, God's love, divine love. The love of Christ constraineth us. It was manifested in his death. Our brother Bergner quoted this earlier, but it fit right in. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's great love, isn't it? But you know, the Apostle Paul points out that there's even a greater love when Christ died 
for those who were his enemies. We'll say more about that in a moment. Since one died for all, he says in verse 14, then all died. All died legally. All died equally. And all are candidates for salvation. The debt of sin was paid. Verse 19 says, not imputing their trespasses unto them. That's the good news, isn't it, that we have to bring to men. The fact that the sin question has been settled. And I believe that with all my heart. The sin question has been settled. Why, if we were to go to hell because of our sins, we'd all be on the way to hell. But Christ died for sin once and for all. And 1 John 2, 2, the apostle says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Yet all are not saved, even though the sin question is settled. And somebody may ask, why? Shouldn't everyone be saved if the sin question of all men has been settled? The answer, of course, is found in verses like 3, John 3, 18 and 19. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And now listen to verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And so men are on their way to eternal hell, when they die in their sin, they might just as well that it might just as well have been that Christ never had died as far as they're concerned. In Romans 5:11, the apostle Paul gives us a verse which was quoted earlier during the meetings thus far. Let me read it again. Romans 5:11 and not only so but we also joy or rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Men refuse the reconciliation that has been made. And so they are going to a Christless eternity without hope. The merits of the death of Christ are only applied to those who believe the gospel. 
Pastor Charles Baker, in his very helpful book, Dispensational Theology, puts it in these words. He says, The death of Christ has secured an unlimited provision, but a limited application. Limited only to believers. That brings us to verse 15. Verse 15 in our text, an unlimited provision. And the subject that I was assigned was that Christ died for all, and we have it in this verse. He died for all. Here is the scope of his vicarious death. The scope of his death is not revealed in the prophetic scriptures. For instance, in Psalm 22, and you may turn there if you'd like, Psalm 22, which is a psalm describing the death of Christ, the prophet said, let me just read a few verses here, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn, and so on. And he goes on in verse 18 they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture, and so on. And then in verse 22, we have the ones for whom Christ died as revealed here in the Psalms. Let's see what it says. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him, all ye the seed of Jacob. Glorify him and fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. And so nothing is said here about Christ dying for the world. We couldn't ever understand that from reading Psalm 22 by itself, could we? Isaiah 53, well-known passage to all of us. I remember when I was in Bible school, they told us that Isaiah 53, 6 is a perfect salvation verse. And they said, all men need to go in the first all and come out the last all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, 
and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now who was Isaiah talking about? It is evident from the context that he was talking about the people of Israel, wasn't he? In Matthew 20, 28, even the Son of Man, here are Christ's own words, even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Doesn't tell us how many or who, it just says many. And in Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Words spoken at the last Passover. And in Acts 5, verses 30 and 31, the Apostle Peter, in speaking to the Sanhedrin, tells about the death of Christ, and he says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew, and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted to his right hand to be the prince and the savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And here again, it is evident that Israel are the only ones who are in view. Somebody says, what about John the Baptist's announcement in John 1, 29? Remember John 1, 29? John the Baptist, when the Lord Jesus came to be baptized with water by John, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now it would seem that John must have known that Christ was going to die for the sins of the world from those words. But it's evident from verse 31 when John explains, and he says, And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. I remember our brother Otis Wasson told me one time, with the Lord now, dear brother Otis, a staunch grace preacher, and I remember Otis saying to me, I came into the grace message and came to see the distinctive Pauline revelation through reading John 131. And he said, you know, I couldn't get away from it. Here John the Baptist, after saying, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, and now he says, I knew him only as because he was to be made manifest to Israel. So John the Baptist really didn't know that Christ was to die for the world, even though it almost sounds like he knew what he was saying there. 
But he said it, and uh, certainly the Holy Spirit wanted him to say it, and it's recorded for our instruction. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul tells for whom Christ died. And here we have the clear-cut answer for whom did Christ die? Romans 5, verse 6 says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. A couple of my five-point Calvinist friends have told me that Christ died only for the elect. And I said, well, I didn't know the elect were the only ones who were ungodly. <laughs> but that's what really you're saying, isn't it? Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 10 says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. And so, the Apostle Paul explains rather plainly, I believe, from Romans 5, for whom Christ died. And we learn in reading 1 Timothy 2, the first six verses, and here's another very familiar portion. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority. Notice all the alls here. For kings and all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, if the English language means anything, it means that Christ died for all. Hebrews 2.9, we are told that Christ tasted death for every man. And back to our text in verse 19, 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and hath committed unto us the word of the reconciliation, the word or the ministry of the reconciliation. And Paul's conclusion is 
that since Christ died for all, then all died. That they which live should no longer live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. They which live. These, of course, are believers. All men died legally, and the sin question was settled when Christ died. But only believers have been raised to walk in newness of life. We have spiritual life. Resurrection life, it's called in Romans 6, 4. And because we have life, we should no longer live unto ourselves, but unto him. You see, salvation is not only freedom from sin, but also from self. That takes us to the 16th verse. A changed relationship. Wherefore, henceforth. And let me just throw out a suggestion for perhaps new believers and some who are just beginning to study your Bibles. Very important to note the time words in Scripture. Now, henceforth, and many, many others. Time words are always very important. And when you are studying a portion of Scripture and you read a word like now or henceforth or from now on, time words, we should almost always ask ourselves the question, what time is this talking about? If you do that, it'll throw a lot of light on the Scriptures. He says, henceforth, or from now on, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now, from now on, henceforth, know we him no more after the flesh. In the past, God looked at the human race as either Jews or Gentiles. And now, since the church, the body of Christ, is formed, he sees neither Jew nor Gentile. But the whole human race is either a Jew or a Gentile or a member of the church. The entire human race. In the Old Testament, Israel, of course, was God's chosen and favored people. In the gospel accounts and during Christ's earthly ministry, we already heard in our conference thus far, Matthew 10, 5 and 6 quoted, where Christ said, Go not into the way of the Gentiles. In Matthew 15, 24, 
where he said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in John 4.22, where he ministered to the Samaritan woman, who was only part Jewish. And he said to her, salvation is of the Jews. But now Paul announces there is no difference. Romans 3, 22 and 23, For there is no difference, for all have sinned, or all sinned, sinned in Adam, and have come short of the glory of God. No difference. Romans 10, 12, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek or the Gentile. There was a time when there was a difference. I often illustrate to our people at home in Denver that God placed Israel up here on this high level. The rest of the world was down here. But we read in Romans 11:32 that God hath concluded them all in unbelief, he brought Israel right down to the same level as the rest of the world. God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all, as Mr. Stam says, on the same basis. Even Peter recognizes the fact in Acts 15, verse 9, God has put no difference between us and them. So, in this age of grace in which we live, God looks at all men alike. We're all sinners, all of us. And outside of Christ, outside of faith in the finished work of Christ, we are on our way to a Christless eternity. There is a new relationship with Christ himself. Many are satisfied with knowing about the lowly Jesus. In many churches today, preachers stand behind the pulpit and proclaim the earthly Jesus. And they preach from the parables and attempt to make an application to this evil age in which we live. In many religious circles, men are exhorted to know themselves and to keep the commandments, live by the Sermon on the Mount. I remember one time I was in the hospital calling on one of our people and 
I stopped by the bed in the same room where another man was in great pain and my friend from our church told me he said he's very very ill I, and I went over to him introduced myself and I asked him I said have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior oh he said I live by the Ten Commandments what an awful thing to come to the doors of eternity and hope that somehow you're going to be saved by trying to keep the Ten Commandments but that's exactly what many are doing and uh, I, I think it's especially uh, a terrifying thing when someone gets up in years and uh, naturally is, is uh, close to eternity and then they're ill and may go at any moment and they're without Christ. Let me just stop and say here, maybe in this Sunday night service someone slipped into the service and you've never come to know the joy of sins forgiven. You've never come to realize that Christ died for you and maybe you've never trusted him. Usually you would think that in a Bible conference everybody was saved, but, you know, we've had folks, I can remember years ago when we had folks who came to the Bible conference and they were unsaved, and they, some came to know the Lord as a result of hearing the gospel. And I sure wouldn't close a Sunday night service without saying a word to you. Christ died for you. God loved you so much that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for you. If you haven't trusted him, wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody right here, right in the service, I'm not going to ask you to do one thing. You can believe the gospel and trust the Savior right there in your seat. Much preaching today is limited to the, to the four gospel accounts of Christ's earthly ministry. Where Christ preached the kingdom gospel certainly wasn't the gospel of grace. Now somebody says, what's the difference? Let me tell it to you. The kingdom gospel was based upon the covenants and the promises that God gave to his chosen people throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The kingdom gospel. God said, if you'll do this, I'll do that. The gospel of grace says, Christ has done this. Therefore, you do this. See the difference? Now Christ, as the glorified Lord, not the incarnate Jesus, but Christ as the glorified Lord, wants to be your Savior. And you can walk out of these doors Maybe 
You came to the conference and you decided in your heart that you wanted to be saved this week. I think there sometimes happens that someone does that. I'm thinking of some of you young people that are here. I understand they have a great crowd of teenagers. What about you? Have you really trusted Christ? If you haven't, there's no better time than right now. Right tonight. How glad I am to be able to tell you that Christ died for you. And the work is finished. And there isn't one thing that you can do. Christ did it all. God wants you to rest in what Christ has done. The only way you can know Christ is to know him as the glorified Lord in heaven. And so we have an impelling motive. A unlimited provision. And finally, a changed relationship. Have you trusted Christ? Why not do it tonight? I want to say that uh, there isn't a pastor in this crowd who would not be so glad to drop everything and get their Bible out and sit down with you and go over the way of salvation with you personally. I'm going to remain up toward the front here and I'd be so glad to talk to anyone and maybe there's other pastors who will be here also and we'd be so glad to go over the scriptures with you personally and pray together with you if there's any uncertainty about your salvation. Christ died for you. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank Thee for the minutes spent together in the Scriptures tonight. May the Holy Spirit seal the truth to each heart. Thank You for each one who joined us in the service. And may the Holy Spirit deal with the heart of anyone who's here without that joy and that peace and that assurance that can be theirs by trusting the Savior. We commit the result to thee and thank thee in Christ's name. Amen. Would you turn with me to Romans, please, in chapter 14, beginning with verse 7, Romans 14, 7. <clears throat> And uh, we'll read through verse 13. None of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, 
Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not, therefore, judge one another any more, but judge this, rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I believe that deceit can be shrouded in this activity. I believe that things can be said about one another and to one another that will take the form eventually of deceitfulness. Anything that represents us to be one thing and proves us to be another, to me, is deceitfulness. It contaminates our ministry in the faith. And let's turn a moment to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. <clears throat> Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you're called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Is that what we're doing here or what? I believe that this is the only way that we can avoid deceitfulness creeping in, is to keep our minds forever on this kind of fellowship in the faith. And it's a joy to witness it here. Hypocrisy is the great barrier to godliness. And hypocrisy is an overall umbrella embracing deceitfulness. A thing appearing to be what it is not. There was this supper club owner and he was uh, friendly toward the local pastor who didn't have a meeting place at the time. And he said, well, why don't you just use our place? We're not open on Sunday morning. The pastor thought, well, that's very considerate. I believe I'll do that. The man says, there's just one thing. We do have a parrot in there, and he talks an awful lot. The pastor said, well, you have to put up with some things. So the man gave him the key, and he opened up the next Sunday morning, and he walked in. The parrot cocked his head at him and said, Ah, new bartender, new bartender. And uh, pretty soon the ushers and officers and deacons started to walk in. The parrot looked them over and said, Ah, new floor show, new floor show. Then the congregation began to file in. And he concentrated on them till they all took their places. Then he said, Ah, same old crowd, same old crowd. <laughs> <coughs> We need to, to stick to the pure doctrine. If we will do that, how can we be contaminated 
or encounter deceitfulness. Pure doctrine, and oh, how the apostle does admonish in this regard. Turn a moment to 1 Timothy, if you will, in chapter 6, where he is advising the young pastor. 1 Timothy 6. And uh, verse 20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. And then uh, across the page, if you have the same uh, format in your Bible as I, is uh, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13. He says, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. I can't see that clock. When did I start? All right, if you're not going to object, I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) Brother Stam, in an article many years ago, it was the October issue of The Searchlight, he wrote an excellent article, and there was a closing remark in it that I think contains a a creed for us that is very well stated. He said, those who have come into this most blessed of all fellowships lose it only in the measure that they depart from the teachings of Paul and the glorious truths of the mystery. Amen? I believe that with all my heart. The seeds of dissension and deceit are many. Piety, pompousness, prudishness, patronization, labeling, accusing, nitpicking, backbiting, contentiousness, it goes on and on. And sometimes there is a suspicion among and between, a misunderstanding maybe of a semantics or nomenclature, and it takes away from the closeness and the trustfulness that we should enjoy together. They tell of the two psychiatrists, you know, that were coming down the street from opposite directions, and as they passed, one greeted the other. He said, good morning, Al. And the man stopped, and he puzzled, you know, and he says, I wonder what he meant by that. (laughs) So we get a little paranoid sometimes, and it creates the wrong kind of feelings. What about tracing back to the origin of deceit? It is well to keep in mind from whence it came. Who is the perpetrator of this crime? We all know that. But let's go back and remind ourselves. Let's go to Genesis 3, if you will, and find this culprit. Genesis chapter 3. Well, let's go back just uh, to the Lord's direct instruction to Adam in chapter 2 and uh, verse 16. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou, shalt, thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now there's a direct 
black and white. There is a, an order, there's a command that cannot be mistaken. You don't eat from that tree. One little tree out of the entire glorious garden that he's not to touch. It seems to me that's little enough to ask. But lo and behold, over in chapter 3 and beginning with verse 1, here comes our friend. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now here is his tact. Here is his modus operandi. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. Here's where it all began. Here's the old boy that caused the trouble. Now, what does the Lord himself have to say about this? John, in chapter 8, then let's find out. John, chapter 8, and verses 43 to 45. <clears throat> he has been speaking to those who believe his identity but they are not spiritually believing and they're saying to him when he says that if, uh, uh, if they know him they will know the truth and, and it will make them free and they say to him Abraham is our father and Jesus said unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you'd do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. Here is our problem. Satanic, carnal. Any time we turn from the pure faith, any time we turn from the pure direction of our Lord and Savior, we are in trouble. And this is the party. Oh, yes, it gives us a great alibi. Satan made me do it. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We have the key to victory. So let's not get into that. We are so vulnerable. We are so susceptible in the flesh. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. I love that verse. I think it's a recipe that covers the whole problem. If we don't take our eyes off him, we're not going to fall in this trap. It is the carnal nature that is still with us. Did you ever have to deal with a sinless perfectionist? What a problem that can be. 
I still have this robe of flesh, beloved, and I'll have it until the Lord gives me a new body. And it's still my problem. And it will be constantly. Which is why I have to keep my nose in this book, or I'm in big trouble. We're willing victims of deceit in the natural state. Turn with me to Isaiah 30. And verses 8 to 14. Isaiah 30, verses 8 to 14. <clears throat> There's background prior to those verses. The Lord is, is speaking these words in response to, uh, well, let's uh, go to chapter 30, verse 1. He says, Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. They are listening to the wrong element, and they are going astray, and even willingly, in the flesh, they are behaving in this manner. And he goes on to say what the what the significance of this is. Then he says, verse 8, chapter 30, verse 8, Now go write it before them in a table, and note it in a book. Make a record of this. Note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the, to the uh, seers, See not, and to the prophets, Prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Mercy. This is what we're made of in the natural. Speak unto us smooth things. Ever hear this? In this modern day and age, did you ever hear a message that was designed to salve this desire? I know one of one prominent minister who uh, has great gains in the material way and I have heard him interviewed on television and he has openly admitted and stated that he tells the people what they want to hear and that way he prospers and he builds his giant tabernacle and so on that's what we have here is that frame of mind they say to the seers, see not. They say to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Deceive us. We want you to. It feels good for you to deceive us. I used to be years ago in direct selling, that is to say, to the home. And I used to ponder why it was that my competition did so much better than I did because their approach would have repelled me. If they had tried to sell me anything, I would have been so disgusted I would turn on my heel. But these housewives wanted to hear that. They wanted to hear out and out lies. They wanted to hear claims that absolutely couldn't be. It tickled their ears. They loved it. Oh, I'll buy that. Well, that's what these people are saying. Here comes the lie that I'll buy that. Never mind about the Lord. 
He can wait. This is what I want. So don't tell me about right things. And he goes on to say what this is going to mean to the relationship of man and God. He says, verse 11, Get you out of the way, turn aside out of the path, cause the, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. This is what they're saying. They say, don't let God interfere with us here. Let, let, no, let's not talk about that, the Holy One of Israel. Wherefore, thus saith the Holy One of Israel, Because you despise this word, and trust in oppression and perverseness, and stay thereon, Therefore this iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall, swelling out in a high wall, a high wall with a breach beginning to break and weaken, that is ready to fall on them in punishment, whose breaking cometh suddenly at an instant, and he shall break it as the breaking of the potter's vessel that is broken in pieces. He shall not spare, so that there shall not be found in the bursting of it assured to take fire from the hearth or to take water withal out of the pit. We have a God of wrath. That doesn't sound good, does it? That doesn't sound nice to say about God, but he says it. He says he is a God of wrath, and these are the things that he will do if we do not uh, obey his commands and his orders. So this is what we have in our nature. We have this willingness to be deceived. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. He tells us what he expects of us. He makes it very clear. We heard this morning about the walk in the faith. If we stray from that walk, that's not God's responsibility. That's ours. We have warnings against deceit all the way through the scriptures. You know, it, it's interesting to me how the world parallels in principle what happens in the spiritual realm. Our forefathers were very, very careful to warn us, do not let this happen, do not let that take place, do not sell out to this uh, element. What have we done? We have turned right around and ignored everything they told us. And we've done everything just the opposite. And we are headed for ruin as a society. Whose fault? Not theirs. Whose fault is this thing? Not God's. No, we are willing victims. We ask for it. We say, please come and hit me over the back of the head and take my wallet or whatever. 2 Corinthians 11, if you will, verses 13 to 15. <clears throat> well, I have a little friend up, up here. Oh, I hope nobody got it. Did you get it? <laughs> oh, there he is. Stomp on it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Now, let's see, where were we? Ah, uh, yes, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15. 
This is a warning against the wrong element coming in and giving instruction and holding sway over the people. Such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to their works. Oh, this kind of deceit is rampant. All of the modernist elements are based upon this very theory. They act so righteous, they act so holier than thou, and uh, so pious, and that sounds so good, and it looks so nice to have all those stained glass windows and to hear all that heavy organ music and to see the man in his robes come out and, and give it the old thing. People love that, and that is how Satan works his best. <clears throat> you know, sometimes it's a matter of, of, of just not being clear about a thing and being misunderstood because it wasn't made clear. And we get the wrong idea. A lot of people are conscientiously following after that because they don't know the truth, and that's where our responsibility comes in. We need to clarify. We need not to be mealy-mouthed when we testify. They tell of the lady who had a Venetian blind that needed to be repaired, and she called the repairman, and she said, uh, come, come in the afternoon about 4 o'clock, and they said, my husband will be home. I'll be away. You can come pick up the blind. So the man knocked on the door, and husband came to the door. The man says, I'm here for the blind. So the man hauled out his wallet and handed him a $5 bill. So if, they don't, if, if a person doesn't know what we're talking about, how can we get our message across? We used to go to rallies. Well, I won't mention the organization, but an evangelical organization. We used to go to rallies years ago, and we'd sit through the whole service, and here would come the invitation. Come down to be saved, and if not enough came, we'll come down to do something else, and uh, come, uh, just come down and shake hands, if nothing else. Then <laughs> the next morning, here'd be the count in the paper, you know, 500 people accept Christ, you know. And... Uh, I would turn to my wife and I'd say, did you hear anything that would clarify to anybody how to be saved? She said, no, hmm? not a word. This is happening all over the country, and it is distressing. So this is part of the deceitfulness. This is part of Satan's deception, and it is a hard thing for people like us when we are out there trying to get the truth out to people. You know, speaking of this, of the burden, and I know that we have much empathy among us here because we all have the same uh, desire in our hearts. A brother asked me yesterday, he said, what do you think it was in the beginning that impelled you? What, what was it that made you determine you absolutely had to minister? I said, I think that I was signally blessed in this regard. I didn't have a struggle over that because when I was exposed to the truth, the word rightly divided, 
the man that I heard preaching was so lucid. He was so clear. He was so distinct that it, it just came in like a process of osmosis. And I knew who I was and why I was. And I, my identification with Christ came through all in one message. I, I, I got all of this because I had nothing in my way. I didn't have to get any water out of my eyes. I didn't have to miss anything that was being taken away from me. And I said, this is what it's all about. Praise the Lord. And I thought immediately before I even, before the service was over, I said, I have got to tell people about this. I'm 35 years old and this is the first time any man stood in a pulpit in front of me and said, turn with me to the truth and here it is. Oh, what a thrill. And I said, I didn't have a struggle over that. Immediately I knew I absolutely had to tell people some way, any way at all. Well, of course, you know about the disillusionment that followed. Everybody wasn't standing in line to hear about it like I thought they were going to. You see. But I still had this in my heart. And here I was in the church, president of everything, and Sunday school superintendent and all the rest of it, but it's, it, it wasn't doing it for me. And you know, some of you remember old Pastor Herman Rich. He saw my struggle somehow. He read it. I didn't talk about it. I felt it, but I didn't know how to talk about it. He came up and put his arm around me one day. He said, son, you've got to preach. I said, I know it. I know it. At my ordination, I was asked, what if your church were to fall apart? What if your people forsook you? What if you had no more congregation? Without thinking, I said, I'd preach on a street corner. We don't follow through like we should, beloved, I know that. But it grips our heart and it makes us know we have been bought with a price. We have no choice. We're his. We've got to do it. Got to do it. But that doesn't eliminate our failings. Oh, how we, how remorseful we sometimes feel. Oh, Lord, how I've let you down. What can I do? But the burden is there. That's the point. And I thank God that he did this to me because I know people that take years to get rid of the problems that they have upon being exposed to the truth. The apostle appeals to us. He gives us a plea. Let's turn to Galatians in chapter 4. You know, I was serious when I asked about when I started. I didn't look. Now somebody's got to straighten me out. Nine fifteen? Twenty after? Well, I'm not going to give you a speech like Brother Archie did, but it's the same same problem. <laughs> we have something in common. You know, 
He said an interesting thing to me last night. He said, boy, he says, you better get used to me because you've got to live with me the rest of your life. <laughs> Hallelujah. Galatians 4, verses 11 to 16, please. Galatians 4, verses 11 to 16. Paul says to the people who have been listening to the wrong doctrines and who have been not very kindly toward him recently because of his efforts in preaching the truth. He says, I'm afraid of you, lest I've bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for, for I am as you are. You've not injured me at all. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where then is the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Oh, how can we identify with this? How many of us have had this experience? To the point of tears. This is the struggle, but it's our responsibility to cope with it. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, 7 and 8, Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that you might be exalted because I've preached to you the gospel of God freely? Do you condemn me for this? I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. And this is your reaction. Oh, what a struggle he had. You know, this. people have asked me, what do I do? I'm all alone. What, what can I do? I, I can't get anywhere. I've got nobody to talk to and share with. What do you do at times like that? I said, tell you what I do. I turn back to Paul. And I read what he went through. And if that great apostle had this kind of problem, who am I to complain? All have left me, he said. He says to these people, my goodness gracious, alive, I didn't take anything from you. I gave and gave and gave and I told you the truth. And you treat me this way? What is it? Oh, we know this experience, don't we? And he vindicates himself. He clarifies all the time. He identifies himself as who he is. And he tells them what his uh, authority is and still They've got this old nature that gives them problems. He exhorts to be faithful to the preaching of the truth. All those pastoral epistles, when he pleads with these young men, get that truth out and don't dare to compromise. Those of us who will not speak boldly have missed something along the line. By boldly, I don't mean, and a lot of people think that's what it means. Brother, that's not what it means. It means with confidence and sincerity and without hesitation. People who draw back have so much lassitude and are so limp and will not testify are the worst enemy to the preaching of the cross. 
like the mother and father owl looking down into the nest and the mother says, I'm worried about Junior. He, he doesn't give a hoot. <laughs> and this is the kind of person <laughs> who drags down his peers. I won't ask you to turn to these references, but let me quote some of them to you, just to show how we must guard against deceitfulness. Proverbs 14:12. There's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Our own reasoning. Never mind about our own reasoning. It won't do. Proverbs 3:5. Lean not unto thine own understanding. 1 Corinthians 3, 18, 19, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech be always with grace. Oh, I love this verse. Always with grace, seasoned with salt. See, with grace, but not wimpy, not limp and flaccid with grace, but seasoned with salt. Get it in there. And you know that you know how to answer every man. Study, study to show thyself approved. And Proverbs 15, 1. Oh, how this is the balm that helps. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. What? You think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews? What? What are you talking about, you heretic? No, this is not the approach. Fellowship in the Spirit calls for grace, calls for love, soft answer. Practices of deceitfulness, whether intentional or unintentional. Preaching churchianity rather than Christianity. Escaping into Old Testament and kingdom doctrine to avoid exposition of body truth. Did you ever hear a pastor do this? Sure, drop back and talk about how they built the temple or how Moses came along and all that, whatever it is, just so they won't have to get up into that area. <clears throat> Failing to preach doctrine and application of doctrine according to the revelation of the mystery. I believe that this is the one most diminishing aspect of what's happening in many grace churches today. I've, I've been in meetings where it's, been, it's come right out. Well, now let's not preach doctrine in the morning service. We, we don't want to drive anybody away. You know. I don't believe this will get it, beloved. And I don't believe that's being done in any of the churches represented here today. I don't say that to salve anybody. I think it's true. As I fellowship among you, oh, I see such a spirit. This is such an experience for me to wait all year for the... It's worth it. It's worth every minute. And softening and diminishing calling instruction, lest its severity might offend. Watch that. And apologize, oh, apologizing for the gospel, the grace of God, and contaminating it with exceptions and deletions. Oh, this is being practiced to such an extent today. Thank God for this staunch group and assembly which is dead against such a practice. In closing, turn with me to Philippians 4, please, verses 8 and 9. 
This page is in bad shape. <laughs> this passage is so dear to my heart. I believe we have here a recipe, an antidote, antidote. I believe that we have a solution, and we won't have to worry about falling into a practice or a reception of deceitfulness. Consider these words with me. Verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. I believe it. Let's live it. Let's look to the Lord. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee from the bottoms of our hearts which belong to Thee for the precious truths which Thou hast made us aware of, which Thou hast interpreted to us by virtue of the interpretation of the Holy Spirit. We thank Thee, Lord, for the indwelling of Thy Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us and encourage us. We thank Thee, Lord, for those who have gathered together with such sweetness and such grace and love. Such an experience of the heart, this side of the rapture, is unmatched. We thank Thee, Lord, for the opportunity that we have here that it might continue with all the sweetness to the last message and the last goodbye. Be with us now as we proceed through the day. Be with each and every one who brings forth the word and who receives the word. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake and to his glory. Amen.